Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today, I am honored to bring you a conversation with the one and only Nigel Dennis. Nigel has received more requests by other guests as a future guest than anyone else. So thank you to Ginny Callahan, Ollie Sanders, and all the others who made the recommendation for Nigel Dennis. Today we'll talk about the founding of Sea Kayak UK, formerly Nigel Dennis Kayaks, the creation of the Romany Classic, trips to Easter Island, Cape Horn, Antarctica, and more. But before we get to our chat with Nigel, Level 6 continues to be a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we have a special offer just for you. If you would like to pick up some great Level 6 drywear or other kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. And also, if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. And with that, enjoy today's episode with the one and only Nigel Dennis. Hello, Nigel. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue today. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, so you have been named as a guest that other guests would most like to hear more than any other so far. So it's really a pleasure to finally have you join me today, so thank you. Yeah, it's great to be asked, so thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so you've had an amazing history as a paddler, a business owner, expedition leader, expedition supporter. Um, I'd love to hear, let's kind of start, I'd love to hear the uh, the history of Sea Kayak UK. So how did you get a start designing boats? Well, um, by accident, really. Originally, back in the early 90s, I was, well, even before that, from 1980, I was a sponsored uh, paddler for Valley Canoe Products, uh, Frank Goodman. And um, way back then, I early 90s, I decided that uh, perhaps we should come out with a new boat that was suitable, new kite that was suitable for students. So I talked to Frank and um, I asked if I could take the Anasakuta and um, modernise that, which I did. But then Frank decided that um, rather than uh, we make it or I make it, he would make it. So that still left me um, with the requirements of, of a boat because we were teaching kayaking um, at that time, I had a lot of money on the trailer, and I just thought uh, we could do something more suitable. So, in those days, Aled Williams worked for me. He was a 16-year-old school lad, and um, Mike Webb from Rockpool. Mike was actually, um, I'd given him some workshop space, and Mike, in those days, um, shaped uh, windsurfing boards and surfboards. So um, we decided to start um, on a kayak. So the th it was basically um, the three of us messing about, really. So I um, took a keyhole from a white hall, uh, a white water boat, and we set um, to roughly, I'd say, sculpture rather than make a plug, because um, we were sort of shaping and um, discussing and working it out as we went really, uh, no plans. And we got to the stage that um, we'd effectively finished the Romany Classic. Roughly, just before we'd completely finished, um, Alid went off to uh, college and I looked at the boat and I thought, well, I don't think the bow and the stern's right. So we cut off two, three foot either end of the boat and, and reshape the bow and the stern. So in those days, it was the ocean cockpit in most sea kayaks. Um, so we'd put a keyhole in. I'd decided to have the day hatch fully incorporated in the kayak. It was actually Mike Webb's idea to uh, put um, polished recessed deck fittings in because in those days, we used to use uh, rubber inserts to form the uh, recessed deck fittings. And uh, yeah, the Romany Classic was born. So that was early 90s. Nobody in the UK wanted to buy it because um, it was the first sea kayak with a keyhole cockpit. So Stan Schladdock 
the symposium was running in those days, the Anglesey Symposium, so Stan Schladdock came across, who was the importer of Valley Canoe products. I had made a couple of boats, uh, he looked at them, and he said, oh, I quite like that. So he ordered uh, six Romany classics, and we packed them up and sent them off from uh, Nottingham with Valley Canoe Products boats. And from there, Stan asked if he could uh, sell the boat and market the boat. So we initially grew in the States, and we got to the point where we were doing, I don't know, 10, 11 containers a year to the States. And then it, everything grew from there, because obviously the classic won't fit everyone. So I decided then, because I knew how much uh, effect it, it has on the, on the paddler, that we actually needed kayaks for small, medium, large, extra large, and then you've got the tall, skinny people that don't really fit anything. So I set out to effectively design and build a family of kayaks that would suit pretty much all body sizes. And um, that way, that's, that's how it grew, really. And now we're employing 25 people. We're probably producing 90 boats or sending out 90 boats a month. And we throttled back from the States on purpose so that um, I could open up uh, Europe and other countries. So we've now got a broad, a broad base of different countries, so we're not just reliant on one country. So, yeah, that's how it started. So fascinating. It's interesting that nobody wanted the boat in the UK because it had a keyhole cockpit. Why is that? It sort of was the same period of time where there were still canvas decks around and we used to use uh, zinc castor oil to waterproof the decks and obviously the first expedition that I would say was the first uh, modern sea kayak expedition in my mind was the Nordcap expedition so they had actually for that expedition they had actually designed a neoprene vest and deck but they were all um, ocean size cockpits and the view amongst the elders of <laughs> sea kayaking then was that um, a keyhole cockpit spray deck wouldn't stay on in advanced conditions. Okay. So I guess it just took quite a bit of time to convince them that it was the way to go. Yeah, that's certainly become the standard today. So you're, now yours was the first keyhole and the first, cock, uh, first uh, fiberglass boat with a day hatch as well. Uh, with a day hatch as part of uh, a standard, uh, yeah, a standard thing. Most um, most sea kayaks of that era had uh, about a eight twelve inch gap between the back of the cockpit and the uh, rear bulkhead. In those days, they were there was the equivalent of a day hatch. There was like a cut down uh, watertight round container with a screw lid. And they did a recess in the back deck for this. And that, I guess that was the sort of first thoughts on a day hatch. But yes, as far as I know, obviously I don't know everything because you know, at that time there were different things being developed in different parts of the world. But I'm pretty sure that um, we were the first to effectively put two bulkheads in the rear deck so that you had a, a proper day hatch. Now, do you recall how many prototypes you went through in that, uh, that design of the initial Romany Classic? Um, <clears throat> no, it was pretty much um, good to go as soon as uh, the first kayak came out of the mold. Over the years, we've just tweaked a little bit. We changed the cockpit ring at one time just to sort of uh, streamline it. We changed the way the kayak fitted around the uh, knee area and the thigh area, uh, because the original classic was actually curled over far more. So it sort of, the deck came round your thighs a bit more like a white water boat. Because obviously we've got the tide races and the rough seas here. So I was predominantly looking for a boat that you could handle and have more control of in bigger water, which was more akin to white water. So. I did uh, look at quite a few features on the whitewater boats for the Romany Classic. Okay. So because the first one was, well, it wasn't extreme, but it was, I soon learned that if you're manufacturing to sell 
to people, to the public, you need to actually come up with something that fits quite a few people rather than just one or two expert paddlers. So we really had to open up the cockpit area and just make it a little bit more comfortable. Now, what process do you go through to design a boat? Right, well, I think uh, I'm lucky because um, I'd done a lot of paddling before I started thinking about designing boats. So I don't think it's rocket science. If you're good at your sport, if you're a reasonably good you know, athlete within, within your discipline, you kind of know what works and what doesn't work. So you sort of paddle different things and you have your own ideas. And there's only one boat that I've done from plans, which was the Greenlander. The rest has basically been shaped in the workshop and uh, not really made from plans and templates and things like that. I find that uh, even if you change something by a quarter of an inch, it can make a really big difference to performance and comfort and things. And when you change in to that sort of level of measurement, it's very difficult to work off a plan. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, I'd say there's a lot more feel that goes into the boats. And I can only do that because of uh, the amount of paddling I've done in the past. All right, so truly expedition proven. Do you use the feedback from your sponsored paddlers to help make adjustments to boats? Yes, I mean, in, in the early days, there were no sponsored paddlers and as the sports developed we've got park and play and we've got now kayaks being a little bit more designed for specific purposes so you're you've almost got sea kayaking breaking down into different areas and there are experts in the different areas that have far more knowledge than i so yeah, uh, you do need to listen more to people now than you ever used to do, purely because the sport is refining to different areas, different wave shapes, etc., etc. So the sponsored paddlers are quite important because we get um, a lot of feedback from sponsored paddlers. But um, I'd say the, the, the biggest bonus is every year we have a dealer's meet. So basically the de- our dealers are invited to come over to the factory and yeah, we basically spend three days, uh, three mornings discussing different products and where the sport's going and what we need and we all paddle in the afternoon and that, all that feedback actually sets up what I would like to do for the following year and I also take the opportunity then to tell them what we're doing for the following season anyway. So all that feedback is all important stuff. All right. So out of curiosity, what is coming up for the next season? Um, right. Well, that would be telling, wouldn't it? But ah. uh, <laughs> since we've discussed it at the last dealers meet, we're just about to bring out a revamped Romany classic. The old Romany classic will obviously continue because it's a very uh, successful and liked boat. I've been fighting against this idea for the last five years, but at the last dealers' meet, it was discussed, and I've accepted the fact that there is a need for a Romney Classic with knee bumps. Ah. So the Romney Classic performs better for some people in races in big water if the paddler moves forward slightly. So if we move the seat slightly forward, it sometimes increases manoeuvrability for certain paddlers. So with that in mind, obviously the knee bumps are going to have to be in the right place so that they can move the seat forward. But we'll also need to extend the keyhole cockpit by, I don't know, an inch, so that um, as you move the seat forward, and we're only talking about half an inch, uh, it means that people have still got leg room to get their legs in and out. Okay. So we've already got orders for that boat, so that's, um, that's happened. We've brought out a dihedral paddle blade, uh, and that's specifically for people that want something a little more slicey. And we've also revisited the, the crank, and we've, um, we're back in production with crank paddles. So the next sea kayak that we'll probably be looking at is to look at what we've done in the past with the Pulse and the um, other faster boats that we've sort of looked at 
and we'll try and come up with a, a more speedy expedition kayak just for the people that want to go fast basically whilst paddling an expedition interesting ever evolving so realizing that different boats serve different purposes what's been your favorite design and why well i i, I guess i obviously started in the classic but my body size and things is just a, a little too i'm on the borderline so i paddle a surf because I've got a, a long inside, I've got long legs, so I need more leg room. So I paddle a surf, and for a lot of time I paddled the straight explorer. As I developed into doing expeditions that um, were sort of having to carry a lot more supplies, like um, a month worth of supplies, then uh, we need more space. So. My favourite uh, kayak now for an expedition would be the Explorer HV because I can get something like um, 60 litres of water under my legs um, with the extra room uh, when I put my knees up in the, in the knee bunks. So and on a slightly different approach here, or a different, different tact related to the company, where did the logo design come from? Well, we're in Wales. So our um, national flag here is a Welsh dragon. Okay. So it, it effectively came from that and we did it ourselves. It was originally designed so that if we wanted to, uh, we thought it would make good brooches and jewellery and things like that. So it was just a, a design that um, we played around with on a bit of paper and said, that looks good, we do that. All right. Now what prompted the name change from Nigel, Nigel Dennis Kayaks to Sea Kayak UK? Right, well, I'm unfortunately 68 years old now. All right. So basically, at some point, yeah, something has to happen to the business. So I was um, conscious that uh, before everything went under Nigel Dennis. So I, I just thought it would be a good idea to try and, uh, as the company was developing, to develop it into a company that my name wasn't headline okay. to the company name. And it, it's basically as simple as that, really. So you were talking about expeditions and, uh, and being able to carry enough gear for expeditions. One of the areas of the world that we've not yet explored on Paddling the Blue is Easter Island. So tell us about how that trip came about for you. Okay, well, Easter Island is a relatively small island. Sure. It was in those days I did a lot of paddling with Stan, Stan Schladdock, mm -hmm. who I said was the importer of Valley in the States. And Stan loved history, rocks and stones. And so Stan came up with the idea of uh, Easter Island. So Frank Goodman, Stan and I went out to paddle Easter Island and it was just Stan and I that paddled. So steeped in history, everyone knows about the rock statues and things. Uh, fantastic island. The big problem is that um, you have to do it in, you could do it in two, but you have to do it in three because there's very, very small landings. And I think the um, hardest decision or the most interesting decision I've ever made at sea was on Easter Island. Really? Uh, we set out from a small bay and we had to paddle about 15 miles. We set out in force four or five with the wind behind us. so. We kind of burnt our bridges for, for going back and all of a sudden the sky went pretty black and in that part of the world the wind picks up quite strong so we couldn't land because of the volcanic rock and things and the swells. So we made the decision to turn out to sea and we just paddled straight out to sea for a good two miles so that when the wind did hit and when it eventually did hit we were able to turn run downwind in probably something like a seven then, six to seven, and um, get round the bottom of the island into sheltered water. So that was kind of a difficult uh, decision to make, and but it worked. So that was, uh, Easter Island was full of all sorts of lessons. 
Interesting. Some of those most important or most impactful lessons seem to come on a trip that is really, like you said, pretty small. The island's only 30-some-odd miles in terms of its circumnavigation. Um, yeah, but I, I guess it's, um, I mean, people often ask, uh, what's the roughest place you paddled? And, you know, but I mean, basically, it doesn't matter how good a paddler you are, you have to appreciate what the weather's doing and you have to make your decisions accordingly. So, I mean, Cape Horn, Antarctica, you know, all the other expeditions, they're all in the same frame, really. You have to read the weather and make your decisions, and hopefully um, your decisions are right decisions. So Easter Island was no different, except for the fact that you had some trade winds and things that picked up, so it just made, made it worse when you had bad weather on top of the trade winds. But yeah, it's the same as anywhere. You've just got to choose the weather, really. So that's quite a commitment for a pretty small trip to be able to get boats and and gear there. How did you get boats there? Did you take one-piece boats, multi-piece boats? Um, No, we took three-piece boats. Uh, I mean, for years now, we've made three-piece boats. Um, So we flew three-piece boats out. I mean, and we used three-piece boats in Antarctica and various other places as well. So that's what we used. Okay. Uh, the original fleet of three-piece boats um, had uh, bolts going through the bulkheads. But um, that's a long process to assemble them. And in rough seas, most of the pressure is on the bulkheads. So there is a threat of pulling the bulkheads out. So now we use clamps and they're clamped together very quickly. And the stresses are transferred to the skin of the boat. And um, we've not had any problems at all with huh. the, the clamps. So, okay. yeah, we used, on that expedition, we used three-piece boats. Okay. Now, you had mentioned a, a couple of other trips. You mentioned Cape Horn just a moment ago, and it was a pretty well-publicized trip. Tell us about that trip. Right, well, that was back in 1992. And I went to a, a, a prep school because I was brought up in Africa, so... I was sent to a boarding school in the UK for my early uh, schooling. And I can remember sat on the stairs with the school watching the telly and we watched the first row across the Atlantic by Shea Blythe and John Ridgway. So John Ridgway and Shea Blythe always stuck in my memory. And then one day, years and years later, I got a, a phone call and it was from John Ridgway. So John Ridgway said... Um, we're planning to paddle round Cape Horn. I'd like um, my daughter to come, Rebecca Ridgeway, and Rebecca was to be the first female paddle to paddle round Cape Horn. So he said, um, we'd like some coaching and tuition. So I jumped in my car and we went right up to Scotland to Cape Wrath, which is the most barren area of the British Isles, really. And we went out paddling. Well, John is a very determined character. He sailed around the world two or three times solo and things. So I was very conscious that we had to um, prove to John that what he was aiming to do wasn't just a a walk in the park. So we went out paddling on the West Coast and it ended up with everyone capsizing. So rescued, there was about four of us, so rescued the three of them and we got into sheltered water. And that night, John said, do you fancy coming with us? So I said, yes, <laughs> providing I made all the on-the-water decisions, so led the expedition on the water, and that we put the whole project back 12 months to gain some further training and to basically find a second paddler that could support myself. So again, Alid had worked with me for years, so... I asked Alid to come, so Alid uh, and I took that expedition around Cape Horn. All right. So the expedition grew, because initially it was just for four or five of us, and then a local TV company came up to film the training, and in those days the, the cameras were big, heavy cameras. They are about two foot long in the water, three foot long in the waterproof case and about a foot high. So they strapped this thing on the front of my kayak and asked me to roll. And it was blowing about force four or five. (laughs) So I said, yes, I went to roll and I must have tried to roll six or seven times. And this camera was just filming. So in the end, I bailed 
and uh, we all had a bit of a laugh. But that night, they showed that on the Scottish TV, on, on television. So that was in the days where British Telecom um, were experimenting with uh, the satellite GPS equipment around Cape Horn for the 1994 Round the World Whitbread Yacht Race. So they saw that and they decided they would like to come in on the expedition, sponsor the expedition, and our job then was to test the equipment that the yachts would be using and to make sure that Cape Horn was where they said it was. And that sounds a bit strange, but Cape Horn is uh, bang on because there's a trig point on the top of Cape Horn. But a lot of the other islands are actually quite a bit out of position when you start um, checking with the GPS against the conventional chart. So that meant that we needed a support boat, so that meant that we needed more people. And then ITN got involved and they decided uh, that they wanted to um, include us as a and finally on the news at 10. So they asked if they could send a cameraman and um, we said yes, so they sent John Boyce, but unfortunately John Boyce wasn't a paddler, so, and he would have to film, so we decided to take double kayaks. So if uh, John was to be filming from the front of a double kayak, we needed an engine in the back. So I asked a cousin of mine, Chris Unsworth, big, fit, strapping lad, six foot, six foot two, and he became the engine in the doubles. So we ended up having five singles and two doubles. And then the expedition grew again because Survival Anglia decided they'd do a documentary. That in itself is a long story because that documentary didn't turn out the way we wanted it to turn out. But nevertheless, it was, it was a, a good thing to do. So the expedition grew from probably four or five people to two doubles and five singles. And uh, Rebecca uh, successfully completed the circumnavigation of Cape Horn. And in those days, it was just after the Falklands War. So the um, Chileans had seen the military build-up in Argentina. And they had mined all the Woolison Islands. And they had mined Cape Horn. So those mines were still there. So the Chilean Navy supplied on the support boat an officer to tell us they wouldn't tell us where the mines were, but they supplied an officer to tell us where we could go. But the, the big problem with that was the support boat in that part of the world is sometimes 25 miles away because they need to seek shelter. So we ended up uh, paddling through the Wollaston Islands not knowing where the minefields were and things. So we'd, uh, <laughs> we'd land on the beach and camp as low to the tide line as possible and take a uh, turn in going up first. So. That trip, like every trip, comes up with uh, unknowns and surprises. So what was it like paddling with that film crew? Well, you've kind of got to be even more cautious than you would normally. I mean, the problem with Cape Horn is uh, we, we had a long lead-in so that we could uh, further people's uh, paddle skills. So we started quite high up in the Beagle Channel and paddled down and out and around. So the biggest problem in, in, in those areas is the catabatic winds and the um, increase of, of winds. So um, I was using a barometer. We were paddling on the barometer and uh, one day the barometer fell 15 millibars in an hour and the wind went up from like a force three to 120 knots in three quarters of an hour. So your decision making has to be pretty spot on. And obviously with the doubles, we trained with the doubles, but the doubles are actually relatively safe and they're relatively easy to rescue because um, you just write them, one climbs in the front and then the back one climbs in and you can empty them. So you don't do a traditional rescue with them, you, you use a pump. But as far as the film crew and things, it, it slowed things down because you've got to set up certain shots and things. And you end up, it ends up causing a bit of stress and um, a few arguments, I suppose. But in the main, the expedition went very well. And uh, yeah, we successfully rounded 
and then um, headed off home. Okay. Now, how long was that trip? That trip was about five weeks in total because, uh, as I said, we actually had to fly to Santiago again. We shipped out the kayaks ahead of time in crates, so we had to get that ready. We had to have a support boat because one of the regulations is that you have to get yourself out of the area without um, the need for rescue teams and things. So it is a requirement, um, even if it's not with you all the time. So we had to get food and provisions. So it, there was quite a, there was at least a week's preparation before we could get going. Um, yes, the trip was slightly longer. We did a longer mileage than we needed to do just to sort of round off the training and get into the swing of it by for the, the, the people that hadn't done that many expeditions. Now, you've also been very generous in helping other paddlers with expeditions. So tell us about some of your favorite expeditions that you've helped make happen. That's a difficult one to answer off the, the cuff because yeah. there's, you know, there's been, um, I think, Freya Hofmeister, uh, she was originally an SKUK paddler, so... I remember she took a, an explorer around Iceland initially and she took the uh, E off explorer and put an S on, which was uh, um, <laughs> quite a funny thing to do. Uh, we still have her kayak. I mean, Justine was a sponsored paddler. Justine did a lot of good stuff. Sure. Um, Peter Bray, Jeff Allen. So, you know, we went, we did uh, South Georgia, we did a the circumnavigation of South Georgia. Um, and although I was part of the expeditions, you know, we used all our boats and things. So um, I think it's been my philosophy, really, that for, for people that um, want to do expeditions and big expeditions, they are expensive and it is nice to help and sponsor. It gets the kayaks out there, it gets them seen. And I guess more importantly, hopefully they'll they'll um, refer to the boats and things in their talks after the expeditions. But again, we get a lot of feedback from that sort of thing. Uh, we learn a lot. And in fact, it was Fiona Whitehead. I mean, she paddled around Britain and various other places. It was when she took a three-piece to um, Australia and surfed the three-piece and the bulkheads pulled out in the big surf, or partially pulled out. So that taught us a big lesson. That's why we changed the design. So it is an important part of the process because everyone wants light boats, but lightness comes as a trade-off with durability. So we have to learn, really, what specifications to use for what purposes. And, and so we get a lot of feedback back from the sponsored paddlers. All right. So again, expedition proven. Yeah. So tell us about Antarctica. Ooh, right. Antarctica is a difficult place to get into. And again, the paddlers on Antarctica were Stan Schladdock. There was um, Tom Berg um, from Main Island Kayak and, and, and myself. So we flew in with three-piece kayaks. It took quite a lot of organizing because... There's no permits or anything to go into Antarctica, but you have to get there somehow. And you need, you usually have to go through a scientific base. So Stan actually knew a Czechoslovakian person who effectively had developed what was, well, it was like three wooden shacks, but um, he'd actually turned, did a little bit of research and it was called the Czechoslovakian Research Station. So. We went in via that station and um, we obviously donated some money and things for, for the uh, development and the running of the station. And on the back of that, we um, spoke to the um, Chilean Navy and Army. So we were able to fly in on a military Hercules to uh, South Georgia Island and um, take all our equipment with us where not South Georgia, it's King George, sorry. And um, there was a, a dirt runway there. So the Chileans flew us in on the Hercules. They dropped us off and said, uh, right, you need to be back here on a, a certain date and uh, left us to get on with things. But um, 
the, the Chileans claim a big wedge of Antarctica right down to the centre. So they have worked very hard to establish supply routes for all the scientific stations and things. So Chile is actually a country that will help in those areas because they're um, actually establishing their own rights to certain parts of Antarctica. The biggest problem paddling in Antarctica was obviously uh, we didn't really have uh, up-to-date weather forecasts and things. So again, we were paddling off the barometer and what we saw. But the lack of landing spaces, the glaciers are receding. So as the glaciers recede, you're left with uh, basically pebbly, rocky beaches where the ice once covered. But as you land in those areas, you're also competing against the wildlife because that's the only place they can go as well. So that was an issue. But the other thing was that camping in Antarctica was quite difficult because if you landed and, and uh, there's not much room on the beaches between the cliffs and things, so we actually had to find undercuts to camp under because the um, winters are so severe. The water in the rock freezes so you constantly get little chunks or big chunks of rock falling off and um, falling down the cliffs onto the beach. So the only safe way of camping was actually to find an undercut and camp, uh, set up camp in the, under the undercut. So the other problem with Antarctica was the boats were very full and heavy because you can't just uh, resupply. So paddling downwind in Force 4s, maybe a five but we tried to not go too much uh, higher on wind strength you'd, you'd start to surf the kayaks but because they're so heavy they actually broach a little bit and you're very often the whole kayak is underwater because they're so heavy so the wave is up round your waist so you've got to think about pretty good uh, spray decks and all the other things that you would have to think about with the uh, kayaks basically submerging and then the other the other area was paddling through pack ice, which lots of people have done. And, but um, again, surfing downwind, if you hit a chunk of ice, that can be a, it's like hitting a rock. So there's other things you need to think about. All right. Now, how long was that trip? I think that trip was, again, that was about uh, five or six weeks because there's a lot of traveling to get in and out. And we probably spent uh, three weeks actually on the water. So, and with Antarctica, everything you take in, you have to bring out as well. So it took us um, at least a day to strip out all the packaging from the food and everything and get all that. Uh, um, so we were very conscious and we needed to, as I said, not leave everything, anything behind us. So it sounds easy, but um, you have to think about how are you going to set up camp and what you're going to do and how you're going to bring everything out. So the easiest thing is not to take much in if you can help it. So that took a lot of organizing. So camping under those undercuts, uh, that probably poses its own set of risks. Uh, well, it does. Camping in, in Antarctica, well, for us, in the area that we were, there was a risk of, of wildlife because um, some of the seals are, yeah, some of them are a little bit aggressive. So. Um, and of course, it's generally mating season, so you've got to be careful there as well. You've got leopard seals and things like that. But landing in the cliff area, for sure, you've, you've got to be very wary of uh, rocks and debris falling off the cliffs. So, yeah, you've just got to be quick, get under the undercuts and set up camp, and then you're relatively safe. Any particularly scary moments on that trip? Um... No, okay. uh, concerned moments. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, the problem with a trip like that is when you're when you're told you need to be somewhere to to catch a Hercules back out. It's not long after you get on the water. If you're out there for three weeks, and you st you know sort of approaching the halfway mark. Your concern is uh, getting back. So that's a bit of a downside because you're always airing on the side of caution to make sure you're back in time. So that means that we could have probably done more longer trips, bigger mileages, if we weren't concerned, as concerned about getting back to the start. So if you could paddle one place on Earth, where would that be and why? Ah, that's a very hard question. 
I don't know the answer to that question because okay. I, in the past, when I was younger, I got a lot out of being the first to do something, but that's changed for me now. I don't feel that I have to be a first anymore. I like expeditioning for what you see and for what you experience. So to answer that question, I'd, I'd have to look, pick remote areas and look at what's there uh, in order to choose where I wanted to go. I've sort of grown fonder of remote areas with wildlife and good things to see and experience rather than banging your head against a brick wall doing a long sea crossing in bad weather and things like that. So I guess I've just got softer and older. Is there another expedition in your future? Well, I've sort of not done... I used to do or plan to do a big trip every two to three years. So uh, I've ended up doing more smaller trips to key areas of interest, really. And obviously with the factory and things, I, I, I get to open up new expedition centres and things like that. So i just come back from uh, Spain, but the trip before that was Dominica. So there's some good paddling there. So there's just so many places to go, really. I think the hardest thing now is, I've always had the philosophy is you don't ask permission because they'll say no. Um, <laughs> so it's getting harder to do stuff on the hoof because the world's getting a smaller place. I mean, we've done, I suppose I shouldn't say this, but we've done 11 illegal crossings of the Straits of Gibraltar because um, you've got Morocco, Spain, Gibraltar, and, and everyone says they own it, but nobody really does, but everyone tries to stop you doing it. So we used to set off from Gibraltar because that was owned by the UK, but it got to the point where we were getting battleships sent out to us and things like that. So we called that a day. Uh, and it, it's just an example of, um, I think people are, trying to be so look after everyone so much and don't want to get into trouble that they're they're banning you doing things as opposed to um, giving you the freedom to go and do it if you think you're up to it and I think that's a big problem these days so we won't tell anybody about those illegal crossings we'll keep that between us (laughs) (laughs) well I'm sure they know because uh, well I know they know I mean I was called back into Gibraltar on one occasion and I, I sort of refused to go, but then they said, we're not lucky, just come back. So I went back and talked to the uh, maritime police force there, and all they wanted to know was uh, they were on black alert, and uh, we'd um, uh, paddled in at night, camped on a beach, paddled out at night, and they didn't even know we'd been there. So they were kind of interested to know how they hadn't detected us and things and there's just so many stories in that part of the world like uh, again paddling into Gibraltar rounding the breakwater in in quite bad weather and paddling into a nuclear sub pen and things so you can't do adventure without I suppose ending up in some form of mischief at some time. <laughs> so speaking of stories I've had many guests start their own story uh, of their expedition experiences with we were talking to Nigel at the symposium. So tell us about the <laughs> event known by many simply as the symposium, the Angle Sea, sea Kayak Symposium. Well, though I'm pretty sure that uh, we were one of the first to start a symposium. And it wasn't a symposium when we started it. It was back in the early 80s. And because I was a, a Nordcap paddler sponsored by Valley Canoe Products, I, after paddling around Great Britain, I decided that I didn't want to be in architecture anymore and I decided to start a, a, an outdoor centre. So we'd do multi-activities, but we'd specialise in windsurfing and sea kayaking or wave sailing and sea kayaking. So um, I was very grateful to Frank Goodman for his support. So um, I, I was speaking to Frank one day and we decided to start the Nordcat meet. So in those days, it started by, if you were a Nordcap owner, it was free of charge. We'd meet at the centre that I had uh, built. And basically, we had a weekend of paddling. So we'd all wake up in the morning, look at the weather forecast, 
split up into different groups and just go paddling and then someone give a talk in the evening. So that was how our symposium started way back in the 80s. And then basically as time progressed and there was the need for more tuition for people and people were more interested in learning and things, we changed the format into um, you know workshops and clinics and things. So, um, and then the more modern symposium uh, was born, which uh, we all know of. And that has just developed over the years. I mean, at one point we were, had about 250 clients to the symposium, but it got to the point where it was very difficult to manage and the facilities weren't good enough. So we've cut that down to probably something, no more than 150 symposium clients. And then... On top of that, because we're in the area where there's a lot of tide and things, uh, we could never run that without the support of coaches and our sponsored paddlers and things like that. So this one coming up, we've got nearly 150 delegates and it's a bit special. So we've got extra coaches that are just coming because they want to come. But we've probably got 35 coaches so um, we try to work on a ratio of no more than five uh, symposium members to one coach. And obviously you put five together and you've got two coaches to look after the folk on the water. And then we throw extras in depending on what they're doing. So it's as simple as that really. We get up in the morning, we still see what the weather's doing, choose the venues and the coaches decide where they're going with the approval of... Um, well, myself, I suppose. And um, we inform the Coast Guard and everyone's checked out and checked back, hopefully. And it's worked perfect for the last 40 years, 39 years. So congratulations on uh, what will be the 40th running of the Anglesey Sea Kayak Symposium. And I understand it may be the longest running symposium in existence. Well, I think it probably is, but I don't know enough to, to make that, that claim Okay. Um, all I know is it's been running from the early days and there's probably only one person left that has been to every symposium. But lots of them have been to 25, 30 of them and things like that. And on, on, I remember one year we counted up from the coaches that were there, we counted up that 14 of them had paddled around Great Britain. Really? So... We tend to need not so much coaches that are qualified in the sense of a five-star or a four-star or whatever, but we need coaches, that well-experienced coaches. Uh, that's what we go on. So as I mentioned, there are many stories that have started with, we were talking, at Ni- talking to Nigel at the symposium, and uh, I imagine that there are many stories beyond that that we haven't heard yet, but I'd uh, love to hear in the future. So... This has been wonderful having the opportunity to speak to you and uh, learn about your expeditions and learn about Sea Kayak UK and the Angle Sea Kayak Symposium. Um, how can listeners reach you and learn more if they had questions? I guess they can just um, come through email, I suppose. I mean, if anyone wants to speak to me personally, I'm just on nigel at seakayakinguk.co.uk, but they can email info or... On the website, there's a telephone number. Feel free to contact us. Okay. We'll make sure we have links to uh, to Sea Kayak UK out on our, our site, and we'll make sure that we put links out to the Angle Sea Kayak, sea kayak Symposium. Now, I mentioned toward the beginning of the episode that your name was mentioned by more paddlers um, or more guests as the person they would most likely like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue. So who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Depends what stories you want, John. <laughs> to me, the godfathers of modern-day sea kayaking on our side of the pond, anyway, would be Frank Goodman, Sam Cook, Derek Hatchison, John Ramwell. So if you're looking into history and how the sport grew from the early ages, I would say, well, three of those people have unfortunately died, so mm-hmm. you're left with Sam Cook or John Ramwell. Alid would be, he's been very influential on um, kayak design with a number of companies. So 
uh, yes, Alid would be a very good person to talk to. All right. Well, I've I've had uh, some some short conversations with John Ramwell in the past, so uh, about being on the show. So we certainly we can talk to talk to John, or we'll connect out with John and and maybe Alid yeah. as well. And and I think Sam Cook would be very good yeah. um, because he basically did a lot of the design work for Valley Canoe Products. And he basically did an awful lot of design of new equipment for the Nordcap expedition ah, way, back, uh, way back in the late 70s, I think. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect and, and learn from you and be able to share this story with our listeners. Okay. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle, is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Interesting that nobody wanted the classic in the UK because of that keyhole cockpit, and look where we are now with boats. Sometimes you have to break the rules. Thank you, Nigel, and all the other pioneers who've joined and continue to join the Paddling the Blue podcast. And thank you to you, for listening and letting me share these great stories with you. Also, thank you to our partners at Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending special offers to you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. And visit onlineseakayaking.com to take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTB podcast at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next episode, we'll talk with John Hines about the joys of paddling in Ireland. So until then, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.